0: Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Sojourn Heights. As he said, we are in a series uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 uh, Corinthians was a letter written from a man named Paul to a young church in the city of Corinth, a church that was divided and struggling with what it looks like to live more like Jesus than their city. And in chapter 7, uh, he addresses a question that they asked, um, a question about sex. Uh, In the next three weeks, we're going to look at his response. Um, We're going to look first at what he has to say about marriage, and then next week about singleness, and then third about um, living the life that you have been called to. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. So let's talk sex then. Um, At the time that this was written, there were three primary views of sex. Uh, View view one uh, was that sex in all of its forms was just really inherently dirty, Right? The idea of this, the, the philosophy this rose out of is the idea that the, that the, that the body is bad, the soul is good, and so any anytime that you're having sex in any form, it's, it, it's physical, it's with the body, and so it's just inherently dirty. Today, this is often the more uh, religious view of sex. The second view uh, at the time was that it's just an appetite, right? It's just an appetite. It's like being hungry. You're hungry, you eat. You feel sexy, you sex. That's what you do. And just like you can overeat, you can oversex, right? But to starve yourself, either of food or sex, simply unnatural, unhealthy. Today, this is a more secular view of sex. So two views, dirty, appetite. Both alive and well then, both alive and well today. But there was a third view, the Christian view. What Paul's going to do, I think, with just utter brilliance is he's going to step in and he's going to articulate this third view, this nuanced third view, the Christian view. He's going to enter into their world. He's going to understand their influences. He's going to articulate this view and he's going to allow this view to inform his understanding of marriage. So let's go. Verse one. Now, concerning the matters which you wrote. This was a, a previous letter that the church had written to Paul. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. All right, stop there. Um, in, the, in the letter that they wrote to Paul previously, they, they quoted a, a Corinthian saying that was a, essentially a um, statement uh, quoting the sex is dirty camp, that it's right not to have sex at all, even with your spouse. It's just better just not to do it um, at all. And they're asking, hey, is this, is this right? And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to respond to this specific question. He is going to give a specific response to this specific uh, this question. Um, and I think we need to give a disclaimer here. We need to give a quick disclaimer that Paul is not going to say all the Bible has to say about sex, marriage, divorce, remarriage, or singleness, that's not what he's going to do. And it's going to be tempting uh, at the end of today, at the end of next week, the week after, to say, yeah, yeah, but, but what about X? No, no, but what about Y? What about Z over here? But no, for some incredibly personal. What about me? Like, but you didn't address me. Like, here's my story. Here's my situation. This is what I bring to the table. This is um, all that I've got in my background. What about, what about me? What would Paul say to me? They are all going to be Legitimate questions, but we are not doing topical sermons on marriage, singleness, the life we've been called to. We're doing 1 Corinthians 7 sermons on marriage, singleness, the life that we have been called to. And so we're going to see how Paul draws on the Bible in his answer, but we're going to take his answer in 1 Corinthians 7 in this local context and apply it to us. That's what we are doing. So again, the question here... Is it right not to have sex at all, even even with my wife? Here's Paul's answer. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That's shorthand for you should be having sex with your own husband or your own uh, wife. And so the short answer here to Paul, no. Is it right? No. Should you be avoiding sex at all, even with your wife? No. Uh, But what's Paul doing here? Um, It's tempting to think that when he says, hey, because of the temptation to sexual morality, you should, it's tempting to think this, that what Paul is saying is that, man, Corinth was just this awful city, this evil city, sexual morality was running wild, um, which was a true statement in Corinth. Um, And because of that, because that's the situation in Corinth, you need your own spouse. Is that what he's doing? No. No. Here's what he's doing. He's drawing on the Proverbs. The Proverbs that would say, hey, one of the roles of a spouse is to be a check on sexual morality and temptation. Let me give you an example Proverbs 5, 18 to 20. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Which, by the way, one, um, I don't know if it was a book or a commentator where I found it, but it was, I I loved this line, it was set apart on its own on the page. The Bible is a horrible book for the the prudish. Verse 20, why would you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? See, spouse being a check on immorality is not new. Paul is drawing on the Proverbs, applying the Proverbs, to this situation, this local situation in Corinth, and in doing so, here's what he's saying. Temptation is not a Corinthian issue. It's not a Corinth issue. It's a human heart issue. It's a human condition issue, which we're going to find our way back to in a minute. Uh, but let's keep talking sex with Paul. Because now in verse 3, he's going to begin explaining his answer uh, in verse 2. And his explanation is simply nothing short of revolutionary and unprecedented almost. Verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. The, the Greek here is literally um, obligated to fulfill. Husband, you're obligated to fulfill your wife. Wife, you're obligated to fulfill your husband. But listen to this. This must be heard if we are going to understand and apply Paul rightly in our daily lives, inside of our marriage, inside of the marriages that we will have one day, Lord willing. If we're going to understand it, we have to understand this. Paul is not saying, You owe me. He is saying, I owe you. It is not, not, husband, take your conjugal rights from your wife. Not, wife, go take your conjugal rights from your husband. It is, I owe you, not you owe me, which means it is not a green light for a conversation to go like this. Hey, hey, hey woman, first off, if you're married, don't ever start a conversation that way. <laughs> well, maybe, you should, I don't know. Um, I'll, I'll rephrase. I should never start a conversation that way. It will not end well with my wife. But here's the conversation this is not a green light for. This is not a green light for, hey, woman, I don't care how tired you are. You owe me. You're tired? You haven't slept today? Doesn't matter to me. It's not what this is a green light for. This is not you owe me. This is I owe you. Why? Because sex is a means of giving yourself to someone, not a means of taking someone for yourself. In light of every headline we're reading right now, how much better would our society be if we really embraced this? Sex is a means of giving yourself to someone, not taking someone for yourself. It's I owe you, not you owe me. Why? Verse four. For the wife, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, don't disconnect verse 4 from verse 3. Verse 3, 4, and 5 are one flowing sentence, I think. So it's not hand over authority so that you can take from me, but I hand over authority so that I can give to you. Which again means this is not in any form a green light for abuse at all. In any context, in any relationship, ever. This is not a green light for abuse whatsoever. But he is saying, hand over authority over your body in marriage. That when you get married, you are taking your body and you're handing authority over to your spouse and saying, I belong to you. You belong to me. Which is simply an expression, an extension of what he just said in chapter 6. The way he finished chapter 6. Do you not know, verse 19, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. Let's say that one again. You are not your own. For you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So he finish chapter 6 by saying, listen, your body belongs to Christ. Even bought with the blood of Jesus Your body belongs to him. Now display this in your marriages. Spouse, you belong to the other. But listen to what Paul did here. What what Paul did here, it's just about impossible to overstate how countercultural it would have been. For Paul, this was a two-way street. This was wife, you belong to your husband. Husband, you belong to your wife. And, And in the first century, in the in day that Paul was writing in here, let me tell you what, what, what no one believed. Wives belong to their husbands. Husbands never belong to their wives. Never. 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 In fact, listen to D.A. Carson. It is possible, it, that's not true, it is not possible to find another reference in the literature of the ancient world. Which teaches that the husband surrenders his body exclusively to his wife on marriage. In fact, listen listen to this. Like, like imagine that you are a a a a, um. You're you're a reasonably new Christian. You're in the city of Corinth. You've grown up believing that the ways of Corinth are the ways of the world, which we all, you know, tend to functionally do. Right? Our is the culture. And, and now you've become a believer. And, and remember, imagine this is the world that you grew up in. In fact, in the secular world, it was traditional on the wedding day to declare to the bride that when her husband committed adultery with a prostitute, it was not a sign that he did not love her, but simply a way of gratifying his passions. There was a poet in this day who essentially had a, had a, had a well-known poem saying, listen, sex is it's just, you, you know, like if you're going to find sexual pleasure, you got to go outside your marriage for it. This was the world that Paul was writing into, and he is making a revolutionary claim saying, no, no. Husbands belong to your wives. We do not see marriage this way. And this was an unprecedented, unprecedented claim, almost. Why almost? Here's why. From The Meaning of Marriage, page 278, footnote 7. You should read the footnotes. That's where the good stuff is found. The mutuality of Paul's comments was, however, revolutionary in the ancient world. To our knowledge, the only other place similar thought is recorded prior to Paul is in the poetic notes of mutual belonging in what? The Song of Solomon. What's that Old Testament wisdom literature from the Bible? I am my beloved's and he is. Is mine. I am my beloved's and he is mine. What's Paul doing? Again, he is taking the Old Testament, this wisdom literature, and applying it into a localized context here. This is simply nothing short of a revolutionary understanding of what marriage is and the role of a husband and a wife in marriage and what sex is meant to be for. But now in verse 5, he gets practical. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, that's start having sex again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do do not deprive one another. Don't don't withhold from one another, unless the two of you talk about it, you agree to it, you agree we're going to pause so we can have more time to pray, but then when you're done praying... Come back together uh, again. Why? So you don't open a door for Satan. So you don't open a door for Satan because he will joyfully slither right through the door that you open and put temptation right in front of you. And what does temptation look like? Well, let me give a couple examples. I mean, we, there are hundreds of examples. Maybe one practice for our parishes ought to be talking about the really tangible ways in which sensation sits in front of us, but let me give you one, two, maybe a third, we'll see. Here's one, justified masturbation. Here's one, justified masturbation, and the justification goes like this. Um, Could be my spouse doesn't have the same sex drive I do. And I can either, you know, let it be a point of friction, like we can either talk about it, deal with it, I can make them feel guilty, or I can just like kind of do a one-for-one thing. The justification could look like um, masturbation is better than cheating. We have a different sex drive, I, I need more, they need less. This has to be dealt with somehow. At some point, I'm going to have to go outside or I can just, you know, once or twice a week, deal with it on my own. It could look like I'm in a hotel. I'm on a work trip and masturbation now is better than porn later. If I just deal with it when I get into the room, I won't be tempted to turn on the TV later. It could also look like another... uh, Visualization for temptation it could also be simply flirting at work or with a neighbor. It could be that my spouse isn't meeting emotional needs that's manifesting in physical distance. I want to be wanted, and so I need to have somebody who I think wants me. So I have a little inappropriate convo here or there. And what are these? These are open doors for Satan to walk in, and one of the way God closes the door is through a spouse. One of the ways, not the only way, one of the ways that God wants to shut the door and say, Satan, you're not welcome here, is through your spouse. Here's what I mean. I found out the hard way um, after I got married that temptation and lust was a sin issue, not a singleness issue, which if you think it's a singleness issue, it's not human condition issue. For about 18 months, I struggled in secret. Uh, I, I didn't want to share with my wife because I loved my wife, and I knew that if I, if I really just let her know all the wrestles I was having in the early days of marriage, it was just going to make her cry for three days. Finally, I came clean, shared with her. She cried for three days. Um, and then for about four years, I just struggled openly with her. Right, The battle was still there, but I, but I was open with my wife. And then about four years ish in a marriage we're living in Dallas um, we're having breakfast I can still see it like it was yesterday Sun coming through the window in the kitchen my wife standing there and, and I just said hey I need to, I need to talk to you babe and uh, told her that I, I stumbled again last night and my wife just started to cry um, and her response was why, why didn't you wake me up like, I'm in this with you. I'm in the fight with you. I'm in this with you. Your point, God gave me to you and you to me. Let's fight together. Let's not fight on our own. By the way, this was a profound moment in my life for me and for our marriage. And so yesterday I asked Amanda if I was okay to share this with you. and. She said, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I don't remember that at all. (laughs) Cool. Here's a question. Why would my stumble hurt my wife the way that it did? I mean, if you think about it, like I'm doing this on my own, I'm not like physically doing something to her. Why would what I do on my own affect my wife the way that it affected her? Here, here's why. When, when the Bible talks about sex, it, it, it says, hey, don't, don't, like, don't give yourself physically to someone unless you're ready to give yourself spiritually, emotionally, economically, legally, all the way in sex, in marriage, is meant to be these two people coming together and deepening that union, deepening the relationship. And when um, we masturbate and we look at porn, when we flirt with somebody who's not our spouse, we are robbing our relationship, our marriage, of the intimacy that it's meant to have What I do with my body doesn't just affect me, it affects my wife as well. And so Paul begins his answer like this, saying, yes, you you should be having sex with your wife. Because sex is this physical display of us giving ourselves completely over to someone. Intimately, emotionally, spiritually. Which is now going to inform his understanding of what marriage is. And so let's go verse 10. To the married... This is two Christians who are married. I give this charge, not I but the Lord, which just means we're dealing with oral teachings of Jesus that had been passed down. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So wife, don't separate, which was first century for how you got divorced. Um, uh, Husband, don't divorce, divorce your wife. If you do, remain unmarried. Uh, if you want to get remarried, you come back together and marry one another. And keeping this in context of the question, he's saying, hey, listen, give yourself wholly to one another sexually. Get, like, give yourself physically to one another and don't get divorced. But here's a, here's a question I had going through this. There's, there's a, a, a reasonably well-known teaching of Jesus known as the exception clause, it's Matthew 19 and 9. There's a lot of debate about what this means, why it's only in Matthew, all legitimate, but let me read it to you. It says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, here, here's what I'm wondering. If we're dealing with the oral teachings of Jesus, why would he not include it here? I mean, he started out talking about sex. He said wife is a, a check on immorality. Now, Oral teachings of Jesus don't get divorced. Why, why would he not include that um, right, right here? It seems like the perfect place for it. Here, here's what I think the answer is. In the city of Corinth in their day, there was a really low view of marriage. If you wanted to get divorced, it was easy to get a divorce. In some cases, true statement, you had to only think of yourself as divorced. And you're divorced. Right? Incredibly low view of marriage, easy to get divorced. And I think what Paul is doing is he is making a contextualized application of Jesus' teaching and saying, no, no, we, we don't think of marriage that way. We don't view marriage that way. We don't simply fall in and out of love with one another. We, we don't just decide we're no longer compatible. That is not how we view marriage. The church does not view marriage the way Corinth views marriage. I think that's what he is doing here. Um, why. We'll get to that in a minute for now, verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, so no longer uh, quoting oral teachings of Jesus, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So he pivots here to where we have uh, a couple where it's one Christian, one non-Christian, where um, presumably you had a married couple, and then the church was planted, it begun, somebody shared the gospel with one of them, they believe the gospel is now invaded this family, um, and the question would naturally arise, well, then do I need to divorce my spouse over here? And he's saying, no, because you become a Christian does not mean that you now get divorced. It's not what it's for, but this would have brought up real-life issues. For that couple, this would have brought up real-life serious issues, And Paul's going to dive right into it, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, remember, Paul's responding to a question about sex. And so there would have been a natural question that a married couple in this situation would have asked. Here would have been the question. If I had been cleansed by Jesus... If I've come to faith in Jesus, the blood of Jesus has cleansed me, does now sex with my non-Christian spouse defile me? And if the answer is yes, what does that mean about my child? In other words, what what does God think of me, and what does God think of my child? Is what I'm doing, taking what you've cleansed and making it dirty again. Paul is saying, short answer, no. No. Saying when God thinks of you and he thinks of your spouse, he sees you influencing your spouse, not the other way around. That's why, it's why there's a verb, spouse is being sanctified, verbal, it's happening to them. I don't know, when I, when I think of you, when I think of this family where there's one believer, I see the, the believer, my, my, my child, I see you influencing the spouse. And then, and then when it comes to your child, what about your child? Oh, no, 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 don't don't worry. Your child's clean. When the Lord looks down on your lineage, He says they're holy, Beautiful set apart from the world, set apart to God. And in the context, he's saying, hey, listen, stay married. Stay married. When it comes to how God sees you or sees your child, you don't, you don't have anything to worry about. Verse 15, but, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You saying, listen, if the, if the non-Christian, if they, if they want to leave, let them go. We have a God of peace. You're not bound to that marriage anymore. You, you don't know, by the way, if forcing them to say, stay, and there were plenty of cultural mechanisms to try to force somebody to stay uh, in first century, first century Corinth. You don't know if forcing them to stay is going to lead to their salvation or not. So don't, don't, don't. We have a God of peace. Trust the Lord with that. But let me tell you, let me tell you what I find striking here. Let me tell you what I find striking. That what Paul assumes, Paul assumes that if you are fighting for your marriage, like if you're, if you're fighting and you're going, you're just like, you're, you're screaming, trying to hang on to the marriage as, the, as the, the unbelieving partner tries to leave. It's out of concern for the salvation of your spouse. Not, hey, you don't know what you're going to get. like You don't know what you've had. You have no idea what kind of husband or wife I've been. You don't know what I've been through. It's out of concern and care and love and hope for the salvation and redemption of your spouse why would Paul assume that? Let me tell you why Paul would assume that because you know what else Paul would assume? Paul would assume that one of the marks of having the gospel invade your life is that now your primary concern is the gospel invading the lives of those around you. That's one of the marks that Paul would see that the gospel would become the lens by which you see all of life. Like if I, if I imagine, if I imagine Paul having written this letter and then you know, six months later, he comes, and he's in Corinth, and he's having a meal with the church, and they're, they're having a good glass of wine, and they're talking about life. I, I imagine Paul going, hey, hey listen, listen. When, when I was writing that, let me, let me tell you what I was trying to get through, what I was trying to nuance in there and drill in there is this. Like, let the gospel define sex and marriage for you. Let the, let the gospel become the lens by which you live your life relationally, the lens by which you see the world. Like when I, when I said, hey, you, you should give your bodies wholly to one another, hand over authority of your body to one another. You, you, know why I, you know why I said that? You know why I said that? Because that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Exactly what he did. That is what Jesus did on the cross, handed over authority of his body for the good of another, for the good of his bride, that's you. You know why I said don't, don't get divorced? Because you know what Jesus says to you? I'll never divorce you. I'll never leave you. Never. You're my bride. I'm not going anywhere. Hey, hey bride, if you walk away, you walk away, but I'm not going anywhere. You are my bride. He says, you are Christ, beloved. Now go reflect the death of Jesus in the life of your marriages. Give yourself to one another as Jesus gave himself for you. Say to one another, I will never leave you because Jesus says to you, I'll never leave you. And if we do, then verse 39 simply becomes the natural way that we would see marriage. That a wife is... Bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry to whom she wishes, but only in the Lord. And if sex and marriage are defined by the gospel, become reflections of Jesus giving himself to you, why would you see marriage any other way? Why would you see it any other way than this lifelong binding of yourself to another? But if that other passes away, dies, then hey, listen, you're free. are free to get remarried. Anybody you want. Almost. It's got to be in the Lord. It's got to be two believers. Why? Because marriage is an earthly shadow with an eternal substance. It's an earthly picture of an eternal relationship with Christ. But then he closes out in verse 40 Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I too have the Spirit of God. So why? Why, in my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is? Well, um, there's a lot going on that uh, Drew will probably touch on some next week when we talk singleness, but let me me at least say this about it. In this little statement by Paul, he's saying this. He's saying your life is not inferior if you are single. Either never married or widowed, your life is not inferior. Why? Because marriage is not the ultimate relationship. It is a beautiful gift that should be held in high esteem. It should not be denigrated the way Corinth denigrates it, but don't idolize it either. Don't substitute the shadow for the substance. Love your spouse. Give yourself fully to your spouse in every possible way, but don't let your spouse become a savior. Why? Why give yourself fully, completely, emotionally, permanently to your spouse without letting your spouse become a savior, I can't say it better, so I won't try. In the Old Testament, God is saying constantly, I'm the husband and Israel is my bride. In the New Testament, Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. Let me tell you what that means. The Bible says sex is a model and a foretaste of the ecstasy of knowing him perfectly. In heaven, we know him face to face, and we enter into a union of love with him and all other people who love him. On that day, there's going to be a deep delight and towering joy and deep security of such nature that the most rapturous sex between man, a man, and a woman is just an echo of it. What if that's how we saw sex? like what what if that's how we saw sex inside of our marriages as an echo of eternity as nothing less than a glorious glorious echo not dirty not an appetite but an echo of eternity what if that became our vision for sex what if that became what if we had this like Elevated and eternal and grand and glorious picture of what sex is meant to be. And what if that defined how we interact inside our marriages? And what if that defined and put boundaries on what we do and don't do when we're alone? What if that became our vision? How radically countercultural might we be? Let's pray. Father, um, I I know that there are hours we could have spent talking about this passage. And so, Lord, I I pray that you would take what time we had and drill it deeply into us. That we might have a glorious and grand vision for what sex is. That we might not buy into any, you know, cultural one-offs, lies about what it should be. And I pray for those who are sitting in here right now and who for, for them this is real life stuff going, but what about me? Like that didn't, that didn't hit my exact situation. I pray that they would know that you love them, that you're with them, that you're near to them. But would we? Would we as a community in the context of our marriages, would we be a people who give ourselves completely to one another? That's just a simple reflection of Christ having given himself for us and us giving ourselves to him. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.